Again, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you all for being here for our Sunday School. As a reminder, we are really starting a series uh, about the cultural issues, as you can see on the screen, against the culture, for the culture, and we're spending the first few weeks dealing with the issue of abortion and uh, pro-life views. And uh, it's one of those, I think with each of these, we're going to feel this way, but each topic, the more you look into it, just the more there is to talk about and discuss that is of real importance today. And so to be Christians in a society that's increasingly hostile to what we believe, we need to know biblically what we believe and why we believe it, and also how to defend that and how to explain that to others and how to even try to persuade uh, those who don't believe as we do uh, about some of these fundamental moral issues that we are facing just everywhere we look in our culture today. You can't uh, go to the store or turn on the TV or go on social media without seeing this all the time. So we're uh, spending the rest of this semester at least, or the rest of this fall season, uh, working through this and may even bleed a little longer into the, uh, into the spring. We'll see how far it goes. But um, Papa Fred, how are you doing, sir? I'm fine, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, can you pray for us? And before you pray, can we go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 1? So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 1. Are you ready? Pop, pop, oh, okay. Pray for us, please. Father God, thank you for your word, and uh, uh, thank you for Exodus. That's a beautiful story of redemption, uh, uh, how you led your people out of captivity uh, and through the wilderness uh, into the promised land, uh, continuing the protection of your seed, the seed that was promised in Genesis uh, Three, the seed of the woman, and uh, in spite of uh, Pharaoh's uh, edict to kill all the male children, you preserved uh, Moses and and his family, and uh, and so that uh, that seed would be preserved, and and ultimately uh, result in the birth of the Messiah, some some time later. And that's what the whole Bible is all about, the preservation of your seed until the time of Christ. And what a beautiful story, and thank you that we have an opportunity to address the sanctity of life, the purity of life, the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the breath of life. And be with us this afternoon as we open our books to Exodus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday, if you remember, uh, we looked at some passages. We looked at Psalm 139 about God knitting us together in our mother's womb, how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We looked at uh, Luke chapters 1 and 2, where the same, remember the same Greek word, brephos, for a small child is used to describe John the Baptist in the womb, leaping for joy, the baby. And it's the same Greek word used to describe Jesus outside the womb being laid in the manger, brephos. So again, Scripture clearly uh, teaches the dignity and humanity, the full humanity of the unborn. Exodus chapter 1 is a text we looked at a number of months ago, but it is, it's a wonderful text about caring for the little ones, familiar story of Shifra and Pua, and uh, we're going to read that together. So Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, 
because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And then I won't read this next part, but the next part is the familiar story of a Levite woman who is married. She has the son Moses, and his older sister guards him as he's placed in the basket after several months after he's born, and the daughter of Pharaoh hears the baby crying. They discover him in the basket, and she adopts him a little bit later into her family and raises Moses as her own son. So here at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, what are some, what are some things we're learning here about how God cares for little children, especially those who've just been born? Um, one thing I think we can see is just through the actions of Shifra and Pua, um, you know, it says they feared God. And so that means they have an attitude toward God, um, one of respect, one of reverence, um, one of wanting to do what's right in his eyes. Um, and so they don't kill the boys the way Pharaoh says. And it says the Lord um, dealt well with them. Because of that meaning, God approved of their actions. God was pleased by the fact that they were saving the lives of these little infant children um, and not putting them to death. And so if God's pleased with that, then I think it's right to say that God approves of those who protect life, not of those who destroy life. I mean, it seems like a simple principle, um, but I think it's a very powerful one. Um, God is opposed to you if you think it's okay to take innocent life, especially the most helpless of the helpless, little helpless babies, um, God is opposed to you and in favor of those who preserve that life. It seems to me that if you go back, Roe v. Wade is 1973, right? That's the year that it, that it, was, that it came through the Supreme Court. And preceding 1973 was obviously the sexual revolution of the mid to late 60s. And I think if, if everyone was being honest, and it's very hard for people to be really brutally honest about this, but I, th I think that underneath all that, one of the fundamental arguments for abortion, if I'm just being blunt and direct about what's, I think, really going on underneath all the politicizing of everything, uh, underneath it all was, was this. Uh, men wanted to be promiscuous with women in the 60s in particular, and that's gone on through today. And with promiscuity, what you have is you have no commitment, no marriage, no long-term anything there. You just want to have the pleasure of the moment and move on. And so a guy would sleep with a girl, get her pregnant, and then he would just walk away from the relationship. Right? So now she gets pregnant, and she is so-called stuck right, with this child, with the baby. And so the idea of equal rights was really a, a euphemism of saying, if the man can sleep around, get a woman pregnant, and walk away from the pregnancy with no strings attached, shouldn't the woman, if she gets pregnant in that one-night stand encounter, shouldn't she have equal rights, meaning shouldn't she be able to walk away from that child, that pregnancy, equally like the husband can? And what, what we're seeing is the real issue here is, I mean, this is going to sound so shocking, but the, the real issue is, God designed this, this thing called marriage, and He designed this thing called fathers and mothers, and He designed sex for that relationship, that long-term commitment, so that when children, which are the natural product of that relationship, when children come about, there is a stable father in the picture, there's a stable mother in the picture, and I mean, we could bring this up on a future week. Kevin DeYoung has, has brought together a lot of the data analysis uh, that you can look at in one place about just the statistics of children who've been raised in a two-parent home with a mother and a father. This is not beating up on women who've, who've had a bad experience or who husbands left them you know, unjustly. We're not beating up on single mothers in that regard. But just speaking statistically, 
Children who are raised with a stable, loving, caring, present father and a stable, loving, caring, present mother just statistically across the board do better in every conceivable way. When you look at education, they do far better. When you look at uh, time in prison, you can see a very strong disproportionate thing there when you look generally. Now, God can do anything with any particular child or any particular moment or any particular hard circumstance, but it is clearly designed that God has made us for this sort of environment of the family. And what's happened was our culture said no to the family. We said, you know, we brought in no-fault divorce. We brought in abortion. We we said, we, we don't want the stable environment of the family. We want Uh, sex with, quote, no consequences. We want to be able to do whatever we want in that regard, and we don't want to have to deal with anything that may come as a byproduct of that or as a result of that. And so underneath whatever you hear on the whole rights issue regarding pro-choice, I think that's the fundamental issue underneath it all. People don't usually state it that directly, but I really do think that's the fundamental issue. So what we need is we need men to be men, right? We don't need men who are using women and then walking out the door. We need men who say, listen, I'm going to use self-control until I actually ask you to marry me, and I'm going to enter into this lifelong covenant, and then we can, by God's grace, have children and raise those in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is how God has designed things to be and how much better everything is if we do it God's way. But yet, People mock it. You know, the idea, of, the idea of virginity until marriage is just, it's a punchline in today's jokes, right? It's like, it's, it's, like, it's hilarious to people. Wait, you're, you're preserving yourself until marriage? What's wrong with you is the question. And, and when you actually look at the, the detrimental effects of not doing that over time, it, it is monumental. Now, let me again say, does that mean there's no grace and forgiveness for the people who have done it all the wrong way for their whole life? No. If we will repent right now, it doesn't matter what we've done for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years of our life. If we'll repent right now, God will forgive us and he, he can fix very damaged situations. But I, I think fundamentally, we despise children. We despise really marriage and family. We want to elevate sex over everything else and sex at all costs, no matter what it affects anyone, no matter how it affects anyone else. I've got to have the right to sleep around however I wish. And so, thoughts on that? I think that's really a fundamental part of what's happening right now. I think the amazing thing for me, because I lived back in that era, for one thing, is how all of this moved so fast at this pace. I mean, yes, the sexual revolution took place in the 60s, uh, but Roe versus Wade was in 73. Mm-hmm. That's almost on the heels of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, uh, like you said, there's a corresponding answer to the dilemma for feminists in approving abortion. And, and I, 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 I sometimes, even when I go back and I look at the timetable, I mean, and that's a long time ago, mm-hmm. 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how could this, I mean, because we were, I think, a pretty conservative, and in the 60s you had Johnson, and it was a pretty liberal um, presidency, but the country as a whole was pretty conservative, I would say. More, certainly more Christian than it is today. So you got any thoughts about that? I mean, well, I mean... Uh... In, in terms of where our, our country is was and where it's going, um, I mean, we're going to talk some about this later when we get into some of the history and the foundation for, like, the homosexuality, transgender. Like, where did all this stuff come from? But, I mean, there's been a concerted effort to, to reorient our country along completely different lines. They, there are people who understood the, the impact of Christianity on our moral foundation as a nation. Um, and, you know, we, we want, like, it doesn't mean that everybody was a Christian, but Christianity definitely had uh, a pretty significant influence on the shape, on the morality, on the worldview of most people um, for a long time, um, inconsistently, obviously. 
Um, but there's people who realize, like, if that foundation stands, the sexual revolution can't happen. Abortion can't happen. All the stuff we're seeing today can't happen. So you've got to erode that foundation and try to get rid of it so that you can put something else in its place um, because you've gotten rid of um, the barrier to it. Um, but thinking about the, the abortion issue in particular, and this, this does touch somewhat on uh, the issue of, of hermeneutics, how we interpret the Scripture. Um, one of the things I was listening to, and this is something I want to do some more investigating on, but when Roe v. Wade was, you know, when that decision was handed down, you know, they, they found the right to abortion, I think it was in the 14th Amendment. Um, and um, I think that had something to do, was it with slavery or, or something like that? Um, and y'all forgive me, like my I'm, I'm a little, allergies and stuff like that, I'm not thinking my best this, this afternoon. Um, but the issue was they found a right to abortion um, in an amendment that didn't mention abortion at all. And in fact, if you look at the history of the time, almost every state in the Union had laws against abortion. Yes. Meaning that when they, that amendment was accepted, there was a consensus view in the nation that abortion was wrong and evil. So there's no way possible to find abortion in, one, in that amendment when the people who wrote and accepted the amendment were explicitly against abortion. It's simply, when I say it touches on hermeneutics, the importance of context, historical context, author context, um, when we read the Bible, when we read historical documents, we do not have the right to create meaning where there is none. We do not get to insert ideas that were foreign to the people of the time when they wrote those things. People do that with the Bible all the time. Um, and it's very unfortunate. And people do that with amendments in our Constitution. Um, they just create things out of thin air um, because they don't accept original intent. And I mean, you know, we, we say authorial intent all the time with the Bible. Same thing with other historical documents. If we're really going to understand what those things meant, we've got to read them according to the intent of the author in their time and circumstances. Um, and that, that, that set a precedent that, that courts, the Supreme Court and other courts, since then especially, they just they create rights. That, that if you read those documents, the Constitution and other things, there's no way those things are there. No way under the sun. But that's how they operate. Because they know it's not there, they've got to create it, um, and that's how they get away with it. Well, I know even until the turn of the 20th, I mean the the 19th, I guess the 20th century, uh, they used a, a, a biblical primer to teach spelling, for example, uh, all based on Bible verses um, up until the uh, 1900s and some. A few weeks ago, um, you know, this is so strange, and uh, this is not a recommendation. In fact, if anything, it's a, it's a criticism, but as weird a world we live in, uh, the, the, the person with one of the loudest voices in our entire culture is Joe Rogan. Ladies and gentlemen, the former host of Fear Factor. You remember that? Uh, so Joe Rogan has somehow become the, the voice of our culture. Uh, his, I, I read that his, or I heard that his podcasts get an average of 11 to 14 million downloads per episode. And they're two to three hour long conversations where he just basically uses the F word like 4,000 times. That's basically all he does. But uh, he has these long drawn out in-depth conversations with people. And I was surprised to see he had a Christian on, a guy from Babylon B, the Christian oh, satire really? website, Seth Dillon. 
uh, who, who appears to be a, a genuine Christian as far as I can tell. And this, this little clip, uh, which has no bad language in it, <laughs> this little clip uh, is when Joe Rogan is interviewing Seth Dillon, and the, the topic of abortion just came up spontaneously. I, I heard an interview later with Seth Dillon. He said, I didn't know, we were gonna talk, I didn't know what we were going to talk about, and abortion just came up. And Joe Rogan is a, is a little bit more, you could say, open-minded than some people, but he certainly is pro-choice. And so I want you to listen to part of this discussion between the two of them. Uh, you have here uh, Joe Rogan, and then Seth Dillon will be the guy sitting across from him. But listen, as Joe Rogan starts off the conversation with about, again, the most intense argument, which is the issue of abortion in the case of rape, which we talked about last week. But he jumps right in, and you can feel the intensity from Joe Rogan, and Seth Dillon has to defend himself. And I thought, Seth Dillon did a great job because he doesn't back up one inch from the pro-life position. And I thought that was commendable, given that 11 million people are watching him, uh, and probably most of them don't agree with him. So here we go. You don't have the right to tell my 14-year-old daughter she has to carry her rapist baby. You yeah, understand to that? To look that woman in the eye who's, who was the but born listen, of rape. You understand that? That's a 14-year-old child. I if know. You, a 14-year-old child gets raped, you say that they have to carry that baby? I don't think two wrongs make a right. I don't think that's murder, not, I don't I don't think think murder is an answer to... I don't think murder fixes a rape. What if we're talking about an abortion when the fetus... Like, literally, it's like six weeks, four weeks, three days... What if she just turned positive just now, positive for pregnancy? I don't. I, well, I just disagree that. What if can, it just happened today? You can like draw a line on when you can't. Like, once life so you is can't begun, do, I don't at think the you draw very lines. moment. I would lay it out like this. I would say, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And I let me stop there. That he probably got that from the guy Scott Klusendorf that we've been quoting. That's a great syllogism, a little logical layout there. Uh, it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills innocent human life, therefore abortion is wrong. He laid it out. I mean, that's a great articulation of the case for pro-life uh, to, to Joe Rogan. I don't, think any of the, I don't think any of the examples of like, oh, well, how developed is it? You know, can it, can it think? Is it conscious? Can it dream? Can it feel pain? So for you, it's the moment of conception. I think that if it's a, if it's a human life, an indis- a distinct human life, then I think it's wrong to, to end its life. Um, and so you think that even, once, do you think that like once the conception happens, there's some sort of a miraculous event, like at the very moment, like you could literally get to the point where the sperm cracks the egg. If you could scoop that egg out right there, would that be abortion? Okay, now, now let me, I'm just going to pause as we go to figure out what he's saying. He's clearly trying to make our position look absurd. He's saying, look, you're telling me that the split second sperm and egg meet there, that, that first moment when, when the sperm enters the egg, you're telling me at that moment, if you scoop that out, if you, if you remove that, you've now committed an abortion, which, which we would say, yes, that's correct, once that's happened. But he's trying to make it sound crazy, and I thought the response here was really interesting. Listen carefully to what Seth Dillon says. Well, I mean, at some point you're going to have to say there was a magic moment that happened because you believe that we eventually become valuable humans, right? Well, listen, where, I, where's, I, the, where's the moment where you think the magic happened? Me, okay, now, do you hear that? He's saying, listen, you may think it sounds strange that the first time you have a genetically new entity at, at the cellular level, that, yes, I believe that's fully human, has an eternal soul. I believe all that is true. It's a human being, even at that embryonic state. But listen, if you reject that, which is scientifically the first time you have distinctly new life, you have the new genetic code, it is a new in- entity at that moment. So scientifically, we we're actually backed up by science at this point. If you're going to pick another time, do you still have to have a magic moment somewhere, Joe Rogan? The answer is yeah. Either you're going to pick birth somehow magically confers personhood, you know, going down the birth canal somehow magically makes you a person, or you're going to say it's at some other arbitrary moment in pregnancy. Like at the end of first trimester, you suddenly become human. 
Like, who, who says? Where are you getting that from scientifically? What's fundamentally distinctly different about that child one second before versus one second after the third month? I mean, it's just arbitrary. So his point is, you may think our position sounds strange at first, but we have science on our side. That's genetically a new entity at that moment. It's new life. Where do you say the magic happens? And you know, Joe Rogan doesn't give an answer because it's very hard to give an answer on that. Okay, we'll keep going here. Uh, we're almost done. When we start talking about harmful misinformation and the, t- the types of things that are considered, like that I say or that we tweet or the jokes that we make that are considered harmful mis- misinformation, I'm like, well, what about, what about calling that baby a clump of cells? I think that's harmful misinformation because then you're, you're encouraging people to kill it like it's nothing when it's actually a human life. It's a developing human life. I think abortion is health care the way that rape is lovemaking, if we want to use rape as an example. I think, it's, I think they're, they're opposites. And, and, and it's like a, a, these are euphemisms that we use. You know, we use the word healthcare. We're talking about a procedure that ends an innocent human life, and we're calling it healthcare. That's like calling rape lovemaking. And this know. is why it's such a, a human issue, because I right. see what you're saying. Life is valuable. Like, yes, and people have almost were the victims of abortion, and they weren't. They, they went on to become these amazing people, and we right. would have lost them. Sometimes it's a failed abortion. Like, there's people who have su- survived, like, a saline abortion, but they, but they lived, and now they're born. They usually go on, ironically enough, to become pro-life uh, activists. Oh, well, that's crazy. Yeah. That's wild. But it makes sense. I mean, if that's what made you. Yeah. Wouldn't you be a pro-life activist? Probably would. Now, isn't that interesting? I don't think Joe Rogan's position changed an inch, but did he at least soften in his demeanor by the end of that yes. conversation? He went from saying, what are you saying about my daughter? And then at the end, he said, well, I can, it's a very human issue. And man, you're making a good point. I could see where you're coming from. So I, I think we should not back down an inch, obviously, on this issue, but just be consistent in our logic and lay it out. And I think that people who are at least open-minded will begin to see where we're coming from. Reflections on well, that? I would say, too, the guy, Seth Dillon, who's being interviewed, like his whole demeanor is commendable. Yeah, I mean, because this issue, man, it is so emotionally volatile. Um, he kept his cool. Yep. I mean, he just kept speaking facts and kept his cool. He didn't get angry. He didn't start yelling and shouting. He, I mean, he, he stayed very calm and presented facts. Um, the other thing, too, I mean, it doesn't always work that way, but when we compose ourselves in the right way, it has a way of disarming people when we don't ratchet up to the level that they think we're going to because we're passionate about our position. Not that we, we at all you know, get rid of our, our, our energy and our, mm-hmm. our concern and conviction, but we can communicate that in a way that's not wrongly off-putting. So I think, one, his demeanor is commendable, um, but two, in God's common grace, and this, this isn't really related to what we're talking about, let's be thankful that there's a guy like Joe Rogan on the other side who was willing to have the discussion. That's a rare, I mean, he caught a lot of flack during the COVID stuff because of the doctors he interviewed. I mean, I praise the Lord that Seth Dillon had a platform to talk about that, and they had a good discussion. I mean, like, that, that is a blessing because how many people heard Seth Dillon do that and saw their hero, Joe Rogan, be like, oh, yeah, that actually, there's some sense to what you're saying. So, I mean, praise the Lord for a platform that, that was someone of a different position who was still willing to have that conversation. And I think we, in light of that, as Christians, we need to make sure that people feel a freedom to have a discussion with us about issues like this, that, you know, you're not just going to, you know, they, we get called being Bible thumpers and all kinds of, you know, wrong things. But um, I think it's, 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 a, it's important that we, in, in our interactions with people, 
give space for people to have discussions and ask questions and have pushback and, you know, well, what about this and what about this and, well, you said this. And, um, I mean, because, again, like, you can get discussions like that um, in the right circumstances. And, again, it's not a guarantee, but we can, we can encourage circumstances like that even more um, depending on how we handle ourselves um, and how we, we, you know, treat other people as human beings. People who are pro-choice are still human beings, and we need to remember that mm-hmm. when we disagree with them. Um, they're horribly deceived. They're under a massive deception, and we're trying to help them you know, remove that deception so they can see the truth, but they're still human beings. And we need to do our best to make sure that they see, listen, I oppose what you're saying with every fiber of my being, but I'm still going to treat you like a human being. Um, and again, in so many other circumstances, when we do that, it oftentimes opens doors for communication that otherwise would remain shut. I've seen it in apologetics a lot. I mean, I, I've listened to John Lennox uh, from Oxford and, and Rich and Daw- Richard Dawkins' debate. And John's so, he's so cheerful and cheerful, happy, funny, uh, been blessed to even meet him and, and know him. And then Richard always gets in the corner and he gets his dander up and then he's just, uh, he's angry. He's angry because Lennox puts him in a corner, but he does it in such a loving way. I mean, he has no response except to listen. So Yeah, I, I can't agree with that more. I, I totally agree that we, we've got to keep our cool no matter what's going on. Uh, the calm conviction and the, the humble joy that can, be, that can be present. Remember Stephen in Acts when he's about to be stoned to death? Oh, yes. The, everyone in the, in, the, in the, it's basically a courtroom, right? They're, they're holding him on trial. Everyone in the room looked and saw that his face was like the face of an angel, angel. which means the peace and joy of Christ was so <laughs> over him that he looked like he was from another world. He, he was sitting there not phased, not bothered at all. And as they actually began to stone him to death as Saul, you know, Paul, Saul, before his conversions holding the coats, as they're getting ready to really throw these rocks as hard as they can, while the rocks are starting to pelt Stephen, he's praying for the forgiveness of the people around him, just like Jesus. And then he looks up and sees Jesus and he, he dies. But that's the way we need to be interacting with those who disagree and, and, and dislike what we have to say. Now, in the interview, they mentioned the idea of people who've survived abortion and gone on to talk about it. I want to show you a clip here. I won't show all of it, but this is a woman named Melissa Oden who in 19, I think, 77, survived a saline abortion, which is what Seth Dillon mentioned in the interview. L- listen to this. This is before Congress a few years ago. Parenthood's 2014 fiscal report lists as being completed that year. Based on these numbers, 897 children will lose their lives to an abortion completed by Planned Parenthood each and every day. Why do I find this horrific? Because I actually have a lot in common with them. I was meant to be one of them. I should have been just another statistic, but by the grace of God, I am more than a statistic. I come here to you today as a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a master's level prepared social worker, and yes, as an abortion survivor. From a botched abortion to the dreaded complication, a child who lives, I've been called just about everything that you can imagine. But if you want to turn your attention up to the screen, as you can see in my medical records from 1977, kind of right there in the middle, saline infusion for an abortion was done, but was unsuccessful. And in other times throughout my medical records, you will read statements like, the complication of my birth mother's pregnancy was a saline infusion abortion. 
You could certainly say that saline infusion complicated the pregnancy. It has taken years to unravel the secrets surrounding my survival, to have contact with my biological family, and even medical professionals that cared for me. And although there are still unanswered questions, what I do know is that my life was intended to be ended by that abortion. And even after I survived, my life was in jeopardy. You wouldn't know it by looking at me today, but in August of 1977, I also survived a saline infusion abortion. And as Gianna shared, that saline infusion abortion involves injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid surrounding the preborn child. The intent of that toxic salt solution is to scald the child to death from the outside in. For days, I soaked in that toxic salt solution, and on the fifth day of the procedure, my biological mother, who was a 19-year-old college student, delivered me after her labor was induced. I should have been delivered dead that day as a successful abortion. In 2013, I learned through contact with my biological mother's family that not only was this abortion forced upon her against her will at the age of 19, but also that it was my grandmother my maternal grandmother, a nurse, who delivered me in this final step of the abortion procedure at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa. Unfortunately, I also learned that when my grandmother realized that the abortion had not succeeded in ending my life, she demanded that I be left to die. I may never know how exactly two nurses who were on staff that day found out about me, but what I do know is that their willingness to fight for medical care to be provided to me ultimately sustained my life. And I know where children like me were left to die at St. Luke's Hospital. I met a nurse there who delivered a child much like me in 1976. She delivered a little boy after a failed saline infusion abortion. But she followed her superior's orders, and she placed him there in a utility closet in a bucket of formaldehyde mm. to be picked up later as medical waste after he was left there to die alone. A bucket of formaldehyde in a utility closet was meant to be my fate after I survived that abortion attempt. I weighed a little less than three pounds when I survived. I suffered from jaundice, severe respiratory problems, and seizures for an extended period of time. And one of the first notations in my medical records by a doctor after I survived is that I looked like I was about 31 weeks gestational age when I was delivered. Despite the miracle of my survival, the doctor's prognosis for my life was very poor initially. My adoptive parents were told that I would suffer from multiple dis disabilities throughout my life. Yet here I am today, perfectly healthy. Yet I know it isn't just how abortion ends the life of children like me that isn't talked about in today's world. It's also not discussed what happens to children like me who live. I can tell you we are your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, and you would likely never guess by passing us on the street that we survived what we did. I'm just going to pause there, but my goodness. I don't know if y'all have seen that particular story before, but that is just... Uh, that is hard to actually think about for, for too long, what, what happened to her. And there's another woman, I may show it on another week, there's another woman who's sitting near her on the table who has a very similar story named Jana Jessen, uh, who, who had the same exact thing. She actually shows an image of herself, or, or an image of what she looked like upon birth, and she, her skin had been basically burned with a, a kind of a black-looking thing all over her skin as a, as a tiny baby. But she also survived. She has lasting health uh, uh, consequences as a result of what happened to her. But she is, uh, she is, generally speaking, healthy. But reflections just on on, 
on, on what she just discussed? Just, just a thought. Um, I, you introduced me, you guys introduced me to Scott Klusendorf, who's a spokesperson, pro-life spokesperson. Uh, pretty, pretty compelling, uh, but he introduced me to, I mean, I, I'm, some of this is uncomfortable for me, mm-hmm. and, I'm a, and I'm a guy. I've also you know, been in the military and all that kind of stuff. But he, he said that in the, in the Lincoln was introduced by Frederick Douglass to pictures depicting slavery and the conditions of slaves on slave trips, uh, uh, ships and stuff like that. And that really turned the corner as far as Lincoln's compassion, I guess, for, for slavery as an issue in the, in the Civil War. So sometimes, sometimes we, I mean, how many, how many abortions have been uh, um, turned around by a woman seeing mm-hmm. her embryo right. uh, uh, by sonogram, that type thing? So that's, that's helped the, the pro-life issue. And, and so even though it's uncomfortable, it's, it's a real issue. It's going on every day. You know, thousands upon thousands of unwanted children are aborted every day. And that, that's a fact, not fiction. So even though some of this may be a little uncomfortable for some people, it's necessary, I think, to tell the story. Well, and it goes back to your earlier point. Um, you know, th- this is what makes consequence-free sexual freedom a possibility. Um, what we just heard. It's so people can do what they want and think they're not going to have consequences. Um, we, we live in a society that wants to indulge in everything and yet experience nothing negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think, think guys of all that's in... I see this because of advertisements. I refuse to watch shows like this where it's all about scandals and affairs and everything like that, and it's celebrated and they win Emmy Awards and these actors and actresses are lauded and applauded for their roles and and how spicy it was. And then the moment someone does that in real life, they are thrown to the wolves. You know, and and so like our society does everything to encourage it. And and every time it's, it's just, it is so... So hypocritical um, in so many ways, but it's, it's all in order so that people can have sex without consequences. I mean, that's ultimately where I, I think, and that is an effect of human rejection of God. Like, we have to go back, Romans 1 talks about one of the evidences um, that, that you are, that God has given you over to a depraved mind is that you engage in all kinds of horrible sexual sin. Um, and it says in Romans 1, I mean, and you know, I, I, I'm not a prophet trying to say anything about where our society is, but I know what Scripture says. Um, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so where our society is, where many people are, obviously there's a lot of people who oppose this, and I'm grateful for that. But where so many people in our society are right now, they're at Romans 1.32. They are approving of things. They're doing things they ought not to do. And they are approving of the people who do them. It talks about being inventors of evil. I mean, they're coming up with all kinds of ways to, to flaunt their sin. Um, and so much of it comes to, it's, it's, it's interesting, 
so much of sin comes to deal with sexuality of some sort and the freedom to go against God's design and do what we want to do, however often we want to do it in any way we want to, um, and what our society is celebrating, according to Scripture, means God's wrath's already being poured out, and the chief evidence is that so many hearts are so hard and callous to the evil and the sin that they're engaging in. And, you know, that, that lady, her name was Melissa Odin in that last clip. You know, pe- people say that abortion's about women's rights. What about her rights? She was a woman. She is a woman, right? She was being born. Where were her rights? So the, the idea, it's, it's not for unborn women's rights, apparently. It's not for unborn men's rights. Let me, let me show you a success story. We, we talk about Athens Crisis Pregnancy Center, which we love and support here. Uh, this is not from Athens, but this is a pregnancy story uh, of a pregnancy center uh, being a huge help to this particular woman. Uh, 90 seconds, listen to her uh, story of what happened. Hi, my name is Leah Wingate. I already had one child and a marriage that had not yet matured in love. And once again, I was pregnant and very afraid. And without speaking to my husband, I went to an abortion clinic. I thought that was an answer. Well, while going in, I found two people that were basically picketing the abortion clinic and their sign said, life is is not a choice. And I still went in, but I had to leave out to go and get more money. And on my way going out, I was drawn to the people that were picketing the clinic. And I took their information. And on one of their signs, it had information about the Hope Center. So instead of going to the bank to get more money, I decided to go to the Hope Center, where I met people that were non-judgmental. They had big smiles. They took me to the back, and they introduced me to my child for the first time through an ultrasound. I was able to see this life growing inside of me, hear the heartbeat, and nothing else mattered at that point. I wasn't afraid anymore. I heard and got to meet my child for the first time, and it changed everything. I didn't care about the arguments with my husband. I didn't care about the fear of the unknown or what could be. I was a mother. that's, that's why the pregnancy centers are so crucial. Uh, offering free ultrasounds, so women come in, they get the free ultrasound. This is not true, obviously not true all the time, but statistically it's, it's a pretty shocking number of women who will go in and get that free ultrasound. Uh, we, we, some of us know people who work there or have worked there, and the stories are absolutely astonishing, where when the mother hears that heartbeat and sees it, I mean, you know, as a, as a parent myself, when you first hear that heartbeat and you see the little baby there moving hands and feet, and you can see the head, and you can see the heartbeat and hear it, uh, it becomes so much more real. You know, a large part of this here is we just can't see the child. And now the ultrasound is this incredible common grace of God to let us see and hear the child uh, very early in pregnancy. And so for for many women uh, and for men as well, uh, it's been a turning point uh, in their their journey when they were considering abortion. You know, I'm thankful for for people that do, um, well, I say picket, that that, that are there to offer prayer, support, that type thing in these pregnancy centers like the Athens Pregnancy Center. Um, Because, you know, again, as Christians, we have a different response. Uh, Ours is not a clinical response. It's a gospel response. And, and, uh, you know, everybody's got a story. And and, uh, it's a spiritual matter that we're dealing with, not a political one.
And I, John MacArthur actually mentioned this this past week because he's in California, he's in Los Angeles, and uh, their governor in California has been putting up billboards, and I, I uh, found the billboard that was being discussed, and uh, look at it. At first, you might not think much of it. It's just obviously a pro-abortion billboard, but look at it carefully. You may not be able to see it. Need an abortion? California is ready to help. Visit uh, abortion.ca.gov to learn more, and then they quote Jesus on the bottom of the billboard. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Mark 12, 31, paid for by Newsom for California Governor 2022. So John MacArthur, who lives right there, you know, uh, MacArthur said he took seven minutes out of his service last Sunday and said, I, I, just, have to say, I just have to say something about this. Uh, you, using the words of Jesus to try to manipulate people into this uh, loving your neighbor as yourself versus, uh, uh, I mean, again, you see the word love has been completely changed. Uh, what we mean by love is completely not what Jesus meant. Uh, how are we loving the, the children? How are we loving those who are, who are being uh, neglected in such a horrible way and, and mistreated in such a horrible way? Re- reflections on, on when we see things along these lines? Well, this honestly is what makes the, the challenge all the more difficult today is before they didn't try to justify it with Scripture. Right. Um, because they knew they couldn't when they were being honest. Right. Um, but now as with homosexuality and various things, they, they try to make a case from Scripture and say the Bible actually affirms what we're doing. And we heard that with that Joe Scarborough guy last week. I was going to say that. Exactly. Quoting Jesus, or saying Jesus never addressed it directly, therefore he was okay with it, basically. Yeah, and so, I mean, this is why anything, I mean, not anything, but this is one of the big things that should push us to really know our Bibles well, because remember, how did Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness? He distorted Scripture. He mm-hmm. quoted Scripture, but he quoted it wrongly. And Jesus overcame that by rebuking him with the right use of Scripture. Um, and so it pushes us to really know our Bibles. And the reason why they do this is because they know for so long, Christians were saying, the Bible's clear. We shouldn't do abortion. God you know, honors all life. And so now they're using the Scripture to say, oh, see, it actually says something different than you thought it did. But the problem is there's a lot of people who are nominal Christians at best who will fall for this. Well, he's quoting Scripture. He must be right. Mm-hmm. And it's like just because you quote the Bible doesn't mean you're using it well. And that goes back to the previous point. We've got to read it in its context according to the intent of the author um, because when you do that, you realize this is an abs- And to quote MacArthur, this is absolute blasphemy. Um, what he's doing here. He is attributing a position to God that is utterly false. Um, And, I mean, we should be terrified of ever doing that, and he's doing it as brazenly, as publicly as he can. And I I can almost guarantee you he knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Like, I I have a hard time believing he doesn't know that that's misrepresenting Scripture. Right. Um, Because he's so sold out to this position that he's going to do anything he can to forward it and get people to embrace it. Um, but don't stand for that. Like, you can say, all right, listen, I, somebody does that, look, as humbly as I can say this, you say to that person, that is not what the Bible says. Well, you let, let's have a Bible study with this passage. Let's look it up in its context. If it's quoting Scripture, let's see what it quotes from the Old Testament, and let's see what it's really saying. Make people study the Bible, and if they don't want to, then say, don't use the Bible. I mean, just put it out there. Like, listen, you don't, if, if you're going to quote Scripture, but you're not going to check and see if you're using it right, don't, don't say you're using the Bible to support this because you just can't. Yeah, and another thing that's common, not just using the Bible wrongly, which is, this is pretty shocking, but using, you know, euphemisms to cover up something ugly. Mm-hmm. 
using positive statements to cover something ugly. I know this is a throwback to, I think this is 1977, the same year as the saline abortions we just heard about with, with that lady, Melissa Odin. This is from Planned Parenthood uh, back with their advertising uh, from 1977, and they ended up dropping this tagline at a certain point. But their tagline for a long time, for a period of time, was every child a wanted child, Planned Parenthood because we love children. And they're, of course, the number one abortion provider for how many years in our country. But Randy Alcorn, do you all know Randy Alcorn? Uh, he's written a number of books on heaven and different things. He, he's written on abortion, and he was a big, and he's been a big pro-life person. He, I think he was spent a night in jail over pro-life issues, and he actually, uh, there's a long story I won't go into about how he got in some legal trouble with, with some clinics and whatnot uh, for, for trying to rescue women from, from abortions. But he had a conversation with someone working in an abortion clinic at some point, I think maybe in the 90s or 80s, and they were still using this tagline, every child a wanted child. And Randy Alcorn asked the person, can you finish the sentence? And the guy's like, what are you talking about? That's the whole sentence. Every child a wanted child. He said, yeah. And, and the logical implication of your statement is every unwanted child is a dead child, if you're actually going to be logically consistent, right? So every, of course we want every child that's born to be wanted by someone. Of course we want parents to be, whether adoptive or biological parents, we want the child to be wanted. But the solution to a difficult situation is not the death of the child. Uh, that's not the, the solution is to find someone who can care for the child, but the solution is not to put the child to death. So be, beware of euphemistic language using phrases like wanted child or we, we love children, th those kinds of statements to mask something that is actually truly ugly. So what is the best forum, guys, to, to address? I mean, I, I don't think it's social media. Right. I mean, you can write books like Alcorn and, and others. Um, I think personal relationships grounded in truthful public proclamation. Going back to what we talked about last week, um, you know, we, we hit Andy Stanley pretty hard on that. Um, but the half of what he said wasn't wrong. Right. The importance of smaller contexts to discuss. When you get people in public, sometimes public is not the best. When you, like, you know, to quote um, Men in Black, what was it? He said, you know, we, you know, we can let people know about the aliens. And he's like, look, you know, people, a person is smart, people are stupid. And what he meant by that was you get a mass of people, you can whip up a mass of people, and conversation and dialogue is impossible. Right. There's a, there's a, a clear place for us to preach on this, to teach on this, without apology, with full conviction. But that's not the only way we address it. Right. So much of this is going to be had in personal relationships as we get to know people, as we, get, as we care for them and we, they get to know us. Like, that's where what you hear from the pulpit and from platforms like this, that's where you start to work that into the conversations and really wrestle with, it, with other people. And so I think personal relationships <coughs> are absolutely key to this, which again takes us way out of our comfort zone. It's easy to well, you're just a pro-choice person and, you know, to, to kind of put that, that category over them to where we almost dehumanize the person. And we don't want to do that. Like, we've got to be willing to have hard conversations and, you know, be willing to repeat the same things a hundred times, you know, before, by God's grace, the light starts to, to turn on and they start to see this. Sometimes it's quicker, sometimes it takes longer but personal relationships, which is what the pregnancy centers, it's, it's personal. Mm -hmm. it, right. it's, it's they care for, the, like, like she was saying, they cared for her. Right. She felt loved, she felt cared for. 
And, and so often, that creates an environment where people are actually willing to listen. Yeah, and just real quick, when she <coughs> said she didn't feel judged by the people at the pregnancy center, I want to be careful how we use the word judged. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't have a judgment that says that killing the unborn is wrong. We have that judgment, and that's not wrong to hold that as a statement of fact. But it doesn't mean we treat people as less than us when we interact with people who've either had abortions or are contemplating abortion. We don't treat them like a Pharisee, like we're the Pharisee and they're the tax collector. We, we, we treat them like we're all fellow sinners in this together. So there's no condescending attitude. But we still have a, a judgment in the sense that we believe that morally this is, this is not what, what God would have us do. Papa? What was the movie I encourage you guys to go watch? Did you ever go watch it? Which movie? There was a, m a recent movie you guys may know. It's it's been playing about abortion and and uh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of platforms. Uh, I'll find out and I will I will promote it next time. But it, it, we saw it well, just a week or so ago, and I, I texted you guys about it. But it was a, it was a very heart-rending story about it. And, and, and that's what we need to know. We need to get involved with some volunteering at a, a pregnancy center so we, so we know the issues. We, we know the, the, the individuals. It's, it's a circle matter, not a row matter, as Andy says. You know, rather than coming from the pulpit, it's, it's, it's coming from a... Uh, somebody who cares in an in intimate relationship, that type thing. It was the movie by the Kendrick Brothers. Yes. Wasn't it? Yeah. One of, their, one of their, their newest ones. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember you saying that now. And it was excellent. I, I'm sorry, I can't recall the name. No, that's all right. Good. I don't see very many good movies anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer, so let's bow our heads together. Uh, Heavenly Father, so, so many different issues are, are on the table right now that we've been thinking about. Uh, we want to care for the unborn, and the way we do that is by speaking what is true about uh, the unborn, that they are fully human, made in your image. No matter at what level of development, they are no less or no more human. Uh, just because you're older or in a different location does not make you more human than someone else. And so, God, I pray that we would be able to speak passionately uh, to protect the lives of the unborn. At the same time, God, I pray for these women who've had abortions and men who've encouraged them to get abortions. God, I pray for your grace to be lavished on them, that they would wake up and see what they have done, and that they would race to the cross. And God, you are a God who loves to forgive. You love to transform lives. You love to, um, to get rid of the darkest of sin. And God, we, we pray for the men in these situations who are, who are promiscuous and sleeping around and, and, and getting women pregnant in different situations, but have no intention of being with these women for their whole life and want to take sex outside of marriage. And God, I pray for them that they would cease doing that, that they would repent, that they would trust in the gospel of Jesus and receive transforming grace as well. And God, I pray for uh, the different states that are having to make major decisions right now and already have been about uh, abortion now that Roe is gone. I pray for your common grace to be poured out on the political processes, uh, that, that there would be just an enormous turn of the tide. There already has been in so many states where abortion would be banned and outlawed. And God, I pray for the church to rise up more than ever to volunteer at pregnancy centers and to even adopt children who need it and to be involved when, when possible in foster care and things of that nature. God, there, there are so many needs. And I pray that, that, your, that your bride would, would uh, step up, as, as, as your bride has done for so many years now, step up to the challenge and love uh, women and children and men who need this and need so much help in these moments. And God, I pray for a, a turnaround in all of our society, uh, all of Western culture, that there would just be a realization that the way we are dealing with sexuality is a dead-end street, and it leads to literal death uh, and spiritual death and destruction. 
and that you would wake everyone up to just how this is a pigsty, and that like the prodigal son, we would get up and we would just return to the father's home, and that the father would come out and, and embrace us in our, in our humility and in our repentance and in our grief over what we have done. And so, God, I, I pray that you would show us how great and big the gospel is in the midst of such a great evil in our society, and that we could love others well in the midst of this, and that there would be no self-righteousness coming from us, but a firm conviction and a love uh, for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the plan is to spend one more week on this topic. We've got several other things that we want to come at from a slightly different angle. So next week, Lord willing, we'll we'll do at least one more week on this, and then the plan is to move toward the transgender issue after that. So we are done. Thank you all.